Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. The person who's talked about more than any other in the conservative party leadership situation is Dr. Kelly Leach. And I saw a story yesterday about a group of her constituents who are who've created signs that I think they read Kelly Leach is not my MP. Spin-off of the Donald Trump is not my president effort. I don't know how far it's going to go. I don't know how effective it's going to be. I know that people are angry. You know, we're increasingly angry about things. And the election of Donald Trump sort of presages what's, what's coming. The populist movement that we've talked about on this program repeatedly for, for a number of years really has the momentum. And the Trump presidency will just continue to push that momentum forward. There is hope, uh, I don't know why, but there is hope on the left that the recount in the United States, which is underway in Wisconsin, may happen in Pennsylvania and Michigan, will somehow prove that Hillary Clinton won the election. I've read some mainstream media stories in the U.S., and it's almost like they're, they're reaching for the life raft. It's not going to happen. It will not happen. Donald Trump is the president of the United States for at least four years. But what happened in the United States will impact what happens in Europe in the next year, certainly, with their elections. And it may impact, depending on how Donald Trump governs from the White House, it may impact significantly what happens in 2019 here. And so we have the Conservative Party leadership race, and a number of Stephen Harper's highly profiled people are seeking to replace him. Chris Alexander is one. Um, Lisa Raitt is another, Maxime Bernier, Stephen Blaney, Michael Chong, Deepak O'Brien. But there's Dr. Kelly Leach, who was also a junior cabinet minister in the Harper government, and she was un- involved in certainly a, some significant controversy at the end of the, uh, of the campaign last year. But she's generating money until just a couple of weeks ago, and she may still be. She uh, generated more financial support than any other of the candidates to become the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And she certainly generates a great deal of headline attention. She's been a guest on this program twice over the last weeks, and each time it had to do with her Canadian values test. For all immigrants, refugees, and even visitors to Canada, And Dr. Leach has been praised and condemned for her position, but she was and may still be, as I said, the Conservative Party leadership candidate who raised the most money for her campaign. And this week she made headlines across Canada because of her commitment to legalize pepper spray and mace for self-defense for adults in this country, mainly a move for women, but all adults. And what brought this to the forefront for Kelly Leach? Perhaps the threats she told us two weeks ago she received, personal threats, and her calling the Ontario Provincial Police to report what she believed was someone breaking into her garage. I also think it's a a matter of some clever generation of publicity with an issue which for most people is common sense. Of course women in Canada should not face criminal charges, possibly, if they use pepper spray or mace to defend themselves against personal attack. Why you would be in violation of the Criminal Code of Canada for using pepper spray to defend your life is beyond me. That's just idiocy. In Niagara Falls, Ontario, a woman who uses pepper spray or mace to defend herself may face criminal charges, should, according to the criminal code, face criminal charges, still up to the discretion of the police and the Crown Attorney, but may well happen. And in Niagara Falls, New York, just across the falls, just across the, the gorge, 
A woman may use a firearm to defend herself, and it's perfectly okay under the law and the Constitution of the United States. But it's clever of Kelly Leach to generate headlines on this issue. And the fact is, whoever wins the CPC leadership contest and leads the party into the 2019 federal election against Justin Trudeau and the liberals, and whoever the New Democrats replace Tom Mulcair with, will want to have staked their position on several issues they will claim as their own. By the way, this weekend we're going to speak about two women MPs who want to be the next Prime Minister of Canada. One of them is Kelly Leach, the other is Green Party leader Elizabeth May, who this week stated she's willing to, quote, go to jail, end quote, in order to stop pipelines from being built. Now, in my view, and more about this tomorrow, Elizabeth May adopting that position should cause Ms. May to ask herself whether she can still, in fact, function as a member of Canada's national parliament. When you announce that you're willing to break the law and go to jail in opposition to a position adopted by the Canadian Parliament, you've compromised your very presence as a member of that Parliament. Opposition to decisions taken in Parliament is fair, and it happens all the time. However, when a decision has been taken and passed, the decision is generally carried out, grudgingly perhaps, but it's carried out nevertheless. As I said, more about Elizabeth Bay tomorrow. But I want to ask you now whether Kelly Leach, whether Dr. Kelly Leach represents thinking which might see you prefer her, A, to win the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada, and then, listen to me now, then defeat Justin Trudeau and whoever the NDP candidate is to become the Prime Minister of Canada. Can you see yourself voting for Dr. Kelly Leach to become the Prime Minister of Canada. She supports Donald Trump. She argues against the elites. Some argue she's a member of the elites. She supports the populist movement globally. As I said, she's being challenged by familiar names from the Stephen Harper government, Lisa Raid, Stephen Blaney, Maxine Bernier, Chris Alexander, Deepak O'Brien, Michael Chong, among them. And Kevin O'Leary's still out there lurking. The vote takes place in May of next year. So whoever the winner of the Conservative Party of Canada leadership is, that person will either be a kinder, gentler conservative than Stephen Harper might have been, or a more to the right philosophically leader. That would be Kelly Leach right now. I guess my question is, do you want more Trudeau or a Canadian version of Donald Trump? And here's Anne in beautiful London, Ontario, where the snow will be flying soon. Well, thank you, Roy. Uh, yes, I would definitely vote for uh, Kelly Leach. I think her policies are very important. Screening for dangerous people, getting rid of the fraud tax, and I think it is a fraud, and uh, enabling women to protect themselves. <clears throat> All of the women I know in my area are afraid because of the crime where I live. And people are tired of living in fear. We We do have a right to... You know, protect ourselves. Yeah, People do. are afraid even for their young kids sometimes. We have laws that. written in this country which make you the victim in waiting. Well, exactly. And uh, However, and however, I have a reason for asking this question. Okay. Above and beyond, do you want the Canadian version of Donald Trump? But I'll share that reason a little further into the hour, okay? But you would vote for, vote for Kelly Leach. I'm not trying to trick you, Anne. Yes, I would. I, I would, Roy, because I, I believe the policy, the policy she has, right. I support. And, and I don't find her elitist. I find her very down-to-earth. Okay. She's successful, but I think that's great. She's okay. been a wonderful doctor. She really loves children. That's another thing that really impresses me about yeah, her. Yeah, that's important. I've never found her nefarious or anything to be, you know, a conservative. Well, come here. I've got to get some more calls on. I love the word nefarious. It's one of my favorites. Thank you. I'm not sure how to spell it, but it's one of my favorites. Do you want more Trudeau? <laughs> well, he has more than 50% popularity according to the polls. Or do you want a Canadian version of Donald Trump? Dean is in Fort McMurray, Alberta. Dean, how are you, sir? Very good. How's, how's, your, how's your community? How's your I community? I would definitely vote for her, yeah. Kelly Leach, but you know, I wouldn't look at her as a... Canadian version of Donald Trump, I would look at her as somebody who's fed up with um, 
with all the nonsense that's being rammed down our throat. We should, if we don't stand for something, we're going to fall for everything, and, and that's what's been happening. Where's the Canadian identity? No, no. Better, I, listen, know, listen. Like, I, I, like I get it. I, I get it. She's, but she yeah. is. She is the Canadian Donald Trump from the very perspective that you mentioned, and that is this populist movement that is going through these Western countries. That is being that, it, that the politicians that the that the 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 um, by the numbers politicians are totally terrified of. Uh, she is the version of Donald Trump because she represents that part of the populist movement that you approve of. Do you know what I'm I saying? Do. I do, but you know I respect everybody's. I know. I hear you. I hear you, Dean. I'm not attacking you, sir. I'm not attacking you. Yeah. No. For sure. For sure. Now, let me ask you really quickly, tell me about how your community is doing now. How's Fort Knox? Uh, much better. In fact, um, I'm seeing a lot of houses being built. Some are already built. Uh, I just noticed the other day uh, a new pizza place is opening. So uh, wow, I've seen that quite go. a while. So that, that's a, a sign in the right direction. Absolutely. If you get pizza, life is good. You got that right, Roy. Thanks, Thanks Dean. I appreciate your call, sir. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm not attacking anybody. I just, I'm just asking. And I, and I really do believe that Kelly Leach represents the Donald Trump factor in this country. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So, November the 8th, big night in the United States, Donald Trump wins the election, is the president-elect, continues to be the president-elect, and uh, moving closer to January 20th. And he's already announced uh, quite a number of uh, members or a number of his members of his cabinet. And uh, and then, of course, the recount has started, uh, all precipitated by a failing candidate, Green Party leader Jill Stein, who had just enough votes to probably cost Hillary Clinton any chance to win. And from what I understand, the Clinton camp is on side with the recount, but they're talking out of both sides of their mouth at the same time because they're saying, well, it's probably not going to change anything. I doubt they could happen, but we're on side with it. Fran Coombs is the managing editor of Rasmussen Reports, which consistently presented the most optimistic view that Donald Trump would win. And, of course, Fran spent a great deal of time on air with us throughout the primaries and then the uh, election. Fran, great to have you back. And what's the story with this recount? What do we need to know? Well, Roy, I think basically if you look at the math, we're talking about 46 electoral votes in all, and 20 of which are Pennsylvania. Uh, where Trump has a 64,000-vote lead, and barring an act of God, uh, it's inconceivable that Hillary Clinton could win that state. Therefore, if Trump holds on to those 20 votes, uh, it doesn't matter what happens in Wisconsin or Michigan. He's still got over 270, uh, and he's he's successful. So to me, this thing is just a nuisance uh, issue. A lot of people have said Jill Stein's just trying to raise money off of it. Um, the Clinton people are playing, you know, they're playing it safe. They know it's ridiculous. They know it's going nowhere, but they're covering their bets in case, again, there's an act of God that somehow pulls it out for her. Uh, I read that a judge in Pennsylvania um, did not allow a vote count or a recount in a number of uh, communities, uh, I think 70 or 80. And I was wondering about that. If, you, if you're denied a recount in any number of communities, um, does that just not invalidate the whole recount issue? It would seem that way to me. Uh, and like I say, just, it's just inconceivable to me, looking back on this thing historically, how Hillary Clinton, somehow she grabs, let's say, 32,001 vote uh, to reverse Trump's win. Uh, I just can't see it happening. I mean, to me, this is more of a concerted effort, I think, to, uh, to just continue to cast questions about the legitimacy of Trump's win, uh, to kind of keep the Republicans on edge, uh, and so that they, you know, just kind of blunt this kind of mandate feeling they have, this we're in control feeling they have, and we're going to jam through an agenda that's completely out of reverses Obama. Uh, this this just kind of keeps the GOP uh, on edge a little bit. I have a friend in the United States who's a member of the media in the U.S. and he's paranoid. I mean, this guy is paranoid about paranoia, and uh, but he is convinced that over the last weeks there's been something put in place which will assure Hillary Clinton wins the recount. And he says to me, this is why Barack Obama was cordial 
to Donald Trump. This is why the administration, the current one, has been careful in what they've said about Donald Trump. And he's absolutely convinced that the fix is in. Well, I like I say, I mean, I'm probably not even worth it. talking about, but yeah, I, I just can't buy it, Roy. I mean, this would be this would be seismic. I mean, the man's the man. Everybody in the country believes the guy won, even the people that he, he lost to him. Uh, to reverse this thing would be, like I say, just a seismic event in American history. Not that his election wasn't pretty seismic, uh, but I just it, it is inconceivable to me, no matter how you parse the math, to see her pulling out. I mean, she's she's 38 electoral votes short, so she would have to win Pennsylvania. And she basically have to win all three of these states because we're talking about Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan combined electoral count total of 46. But there's no way that you can put any two of them together that give her 38. So she basically has to win. They have to reverse the count in all three of these states for her to be elected president of the United States. And that's just is not going to happen. You've done some polling in Rasmussen about how people feel about this, uh, this whole recount business. What are Americans saying? Well, basically, when we asked people this past week, they said, yeah, this, this is not going to take it away from him. Uh, they, people just don't believe it. But it was, you know, it's surprisingly close because the Democrats want to believe it. Uh, you know, most people oppose the idea of a, of a recount. Uh, and among among all voters, Roy, just 22% believe that the recount's going to turn this thing around. There, or I should say that the recount is even likely to change the outcome. Just 22% believe in a recount is even likely to change the outcome. Only 10% say it's very likely. So, you know, even even the most optimistic Democrat doesn't see this thing going anywhere. Fran, as you look at uh, what Mr. Trump has done so far, as far as his cabinet selections are concerned, and the moves that he's made, how would you assess all of that? I think he surprised everyone. I think, first of all, the carrier thing was was a masterstroke, and a political masterstroke. And I'm, now we've got Ford saying, "Well, maybe we're not going to Mexico." Uh, he is. Uh, I mean, you, again, you've seen this, Roy, just like I have. The media goes into a tizzy. I mean, we saw all these stories that, like, oh, Trump's uh, appointments or, you know, his campaign's in chaos, his transition team's in chaos. Uh, you know, his appointments are behind uh, com- in comparison to his predecessors. Well, of course, now everybody's writing that he's actually ahead of uh, all his predecessors in the modern era when it comes to filling these key positions. Uh, plus, they're surprised at some of the people he's talking to, like Romney, Secretary of State, he he's he's clearly tried to make a good faith effort to the other side because he knows a lot of them, you know, believe what they've read in the media, uh, and yet he continues to, I think, confound media predictions and media expectations. The next thing they're going to get excited about, of course, is him talking to all these world leaders without without the media's permission. <laughs> I just wonder, and we only have a few seconds. I wonder what the atmosphere is like in the White House. Well, I mean, if you're Obama, you've got to think your legacy is it's gone, dead as a doormat. It's gone. It's gone. Yeah, yeah, it's gone. Well, we'll it's see. done. I mean, again, Roy, we've seen lots of people get elected and not deliver. That's going to be the real test for Trump. Is what does he do starting January 20th? Exactly, Fran. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time today. I really appreciate. It. Always good talking to you. Always good talking to you, too, Roy. Thank you. All the best. Fran Coombs, managing editor of Rasmussen Reports in the United States. You can get a daily uh, polling on uh, from Rasmussen. Just sign on for their daily uh, reports, and they'll send it to your email box. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So, uh, Justin Trudeau approved two pipelines, and he hasn't slammed the door on more possible now, there are people who are saying he knows exactly what he's doing. There's so much opposition to the Trans Mountain pipe, Pipeline that it's not going to be built and won't be built. Or if it is, it won't be for a long time. And so he's just playing both ends against the middle. I don't know about that. We're going to talk pipelines uh, this hour, and we'll include your phone calls. But I'm going to start with um, a great friend of this program, and we all should appreciate the time uh, that we have with him, Tom Caldwell, the chair of Caldwell Securities. Seats on the New York and Toronto stock exchanges. He's one of the most respected business leaders in this country and a community leader. And Tom, as I've always said, when I need a dose of sanity, I call you. <laughs> and you have to be in trouble. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time. So what's your view of what's happened in Ottawa this week concerning the pipelines? Well, you know, first off, <clears throat> I, I always say, uh, you know, 
if you're a leader and everyone likes you, then you're doing something wrong. And sooner or later, our prime minister has to come out of the nice guy bubble, uh, give everybody what they want, uh, present this kinder, gentler government, etc., and make decisions. And, and like it or not, this is a decision that had to be made. In, in one way or the other, make the decision. And as a, as a citizen, not any kind of expert or anything, I always considered Canada a country. And that is, we can't be held to ransom by any pressure group, whether it be anti-petrol groups or whatever they wish to call themselves, or even indigenous groups or even provincial uh, groups or provinces. We're one country, and we have to work in the best interests of our total country. And like it or not, we are a resource country. In fact, government policies are going to condemn us to be that for a long time. Our manufacturing base is, is, uh, is in severe trouble. So we're going to be a provider of resources. We can't be developing resources and not be able to get them out to tidewater and get them out to world markets. Other people are doing We already miss the, the uh, liquid natural gas market by fiddling around for years, and, and that, that whole industry has moved ahead. So I think it's a decision that had to be made. It's almost like a little splash of reality for our prime minister that sooner or later uh, you've got to come out of hiding and, and make decisions for the best interests of the country. He does. And, you know, I, I was thinking last night, I was sitting at home just reading some stories or news stories about the pipeline issue. And I fully understand the people in British Columbia who say, wait a minute, we don't want our coastline threatened. And I fully understand them saying, we don't want our, our uh, rainforest threat. And I understand that emotion. I understand people in Alberta saying, we want to get this stuff to market because it's where they, we've suffered so much and it's ultimately good for the entire country. So we have competing points of view um, that are somewhat smoothed over by politicians who are adept at that. But at the end of the day, terrible cliche, at the end of the day, there has to be somebody who makes the decision, who takes the time to make the, makes the decision, takes off the referee shirt and just says, this is the way it's going to be. And as you said, we're going to build what, we, what I say we're going to build. And if you try to stop us, good luck. Well, I agree. This was decision time for him. And uh, uh, maybe it's good practice. Maybe we have to do more of that. You, you know, you, you talk about we have to do things as a country. And I, I wonder, and I just wonder, have we become so regionalized over time that we just routinely don't do things as a country that much anymore? Well, I think that's definitely true. You know, it's, it's, it's a, uh, we have pressures. I mean, the Quebec one is obvious. No matter what you do in the rest of the country, they want to have spotlights and tail fins and do something totally different, just to be different in some cases. Some cases better, but different. And, and uh, you know... It's like competition. Countries, like companies, are in competition with each other. And, you know, if you're divided and you don't know what you're doing and you can't make decisions and you hesitate and delay, etc., someone else is going to eat your lunch. And that goes for countries, as I said, as well as companies. And, mm -hmm. and sooner or later, the world in which we live in is a tougher game now. And it's going to be a lot tougher coming out of the U.S. in the coming years. So we have to be seen as decisive. We have to be seen as strong. And we have to be seen as working together. Tom, Justin Trudeau, you know, we talk about having to make decisions. He very quickly made the decision that there was going to be a national carbon tax. And as I said, he overrode the meeting between the provincial environment ministers and his own federal environment minister by his announcement in parliament. So he has the carbon tax that he's, uh, or he's going to have, will have it. And Mr. Wall, the premier of Saskatchewan, was on this program a few weeks ago, and he said he'd spoken to the prime minister the day after Mr. Trudeau made that decision, the announcement in Parliament, solo, that there was going to be the carbon tax. And the Premier of Saskatchewan asked the Prime Minister, have you done any kind of economic impact study of the carbon tax? No. No, he hadn't. So he, Trudeau is capable of making decisions, but in this case, it doesn't look to me like he's, he's willing to think things through properly. France has now dropped their carbon tax. Australia dropped it in 2014. What do we do in a situation like that? How do we approach that? How does, off, how does the business community expect us to approach well, it? Well, first off, the carbon tax is just a tax grab, I mean, period. At the end of the day, you can cloak it any way you want. You can pander to any, all the environmental groups you wish to. It still is a tax grab, period. If and There's no if and buts about it. But the, the, uh, to, to sympathize with Mr. Wall, and I'm not going back on what I'm saying, we need to act as a country, but we need to have decent inputs. And when it comes to the energy 
producing capabilities of Canada, I think it's probably a good idea to listen to the energy-producing areas of the country. Uh, what are their needs? And, you know, for years and years and years, almost since Confederation, Western Canada has been mauled by Eastern Canada. Uh, we come up with these ideas here with very little consultation. Uh, I do think our Prime Minister does make decisions on the basis of what he thinks is popular. Uh, what's going to give him the most vote? You cannot, you cannot govern by saying, who's going to like me best if I do this? Or how many, how many votes can I get? You cannot be thinking in those terms. Uh, again, if you're going to be a proper leader. He is a young man. He's a very young man. Uh, frankly, he doesn't have much experience. I, I know the, uh, the drama school thing may have helped a little bit as far as the political side goes. But in actual fact, you know, he's still a novice. I mean, he, he's, he's a name that was selected by the Liberal Party. And they said, well, hey, we can get in with this name. And, and not to say anything against him as a person, but there is, there is some experience that's not there. So he's going to, you know, I I'm, I'm always like to think that people can grow into the job. And I, I would hope he will grow into the job and mature in the job. But until he gets from here to there, I think he has to be very careful about making politically popular decisions just because they're politically popular. I mean, that, the uh, fighter, the F-35 uh, versus the um, F-18 Super Hornets, is a horrible decision, horrible decision, and it's purely political. It's, it's as bad as the helicopter decision a previous liberal regime made, which resulted in many of our casualties in Afghanistan, resulted in our not having helicopters because the liberals rented, rented them to somebody else. People paid the price in blood. That and that can be the case with these F-18 things. So there are decisions that are being made for political purpose that really do have a cost, a human cost in some cases. Let me ask you to give me another sixty seconds, please, Tom. And how does the reality of a Donald Trump administration, knowing what Mr. Trump thinks about trade agreements like NAFTA, how does that change things for this country most significantly? And what has to come out of Ottawa to address that? Well. I know people have worked directly for Trump over the years. He does surround himself with very good people. He does surround himself with some very tough people as well. So I don't think anything is sacrosanct. You can't say, oh, we've got a special relationship with those states, etc., etc., etc. You're going to have to sit down and talk turkey with this guy. And he, he's a tough guy. You can't be a wuss. You can't be uh, you know, smiling and hugging. This isn't, this isn't the huggy-kissy relationship that we've had just before this. This is going to be a different game. And you also have to know what your goals are. What are you there for? What do you want to achieve? What, what is important? And communicate it such, not only as a, as a good thing for both of us, but also with some teeth. And, and we'll see whether, whether um, the prime minister is up to the mark in that area as we go forward. But that, that's going to be important. I just think we have to be tougher, stronger, clearer. Tom, thank you very much for the time. I always appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you very much. All the best, Roy. Bye-bye. Tom Caldwell, chairman of Caldwell Securities. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Pipelines and First Nations. Professor Ken Coates is the Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the University of Saskatchewan, and Professor Coates very kindly spends time with us. He's also the co-author of Dream Factories, about universities overselling themselves and overselling the degree realities. You should read it. But on the, he's also the author of the report, First Nations Engagement in the Energy Sector in Western Canada. And First Nations people are deeply involved in oil and natural resources extraction and taking to market and own hundreds of companies on the cutting edges. Uh, but we also know there are major associations of Aboriginal chiefs who are marshalling against the pipeline decision by Justin Trudeau. Ken, thank you uh, for the time. Always, you, you write about two competing First Nations realities in the oil sector in Western Canada. Origin, Aboriginals who are deeply opposed to pipelines, to dams and other oil industry infrastructure, as well as I just mentioned, First Nations engaged in investing, in working in and owning companies serving the oil sector. Can you sort that out for us, please? Well, it's certainly a different world than most people think. You would think from the sort of standard coverage of what's going on that all Aboriginal people are opposed to pipelines. And in fact, we have uh, hundreds of Aboriginal companies and dozens and dozens of honey, hundreds of workers who are actually working with uh, oil and gas companies. They own oil and gas companies. They produce oil and gas in some sectors. We actually have some pr proposals for um, uh, pipelines, uh, liquefied natural gas pipelines that would be wholly owned by Aboriginal people. So I think, I think it's important to sort of realize that the issue is not really about indigenous versus non-indigenous. That's, that's a, not the right way to sort of understand what's actually going on. The issue is primarily about the coast versus the rest of the country. 
And if you look at the protests, and I completely respect the people who have different opinions than I might about this, um, but the people who are concerned are the ones who live on the on the west coast in Vancouver, Vancouver Island, and whatever. Um, and they're concerned about um, about oil tanker spells. Uh, they're actually concerned about pipelines. The pipelines, almost everybody knows, is the safest way to move large large quantities of of uh, oil and natural gas from one place to the other. And there's another group of people who are um, activists on the climate change uh, situation. And they're really panicking about the sort of the future of the world in terms of climate change and human-caused climate change. And so they're doing everything they can in, uh, to try to stop the consumption of fossil fuels. And, and there are some Aboriginal people in, in that group as well. So if you look across the country, say just Western Canada for, for now, you'll find that the, the, probably the majority of Aboriginal people are accepting, not necessarily wildly supportive, but accepting of oil and gas uh, development except on the northwest coast and Pacific, uh, Pacific Northwest Coast, where the concerns are quite different. So does this break down then to demographics and geography, I suppose? I think very much to, you know, into geography. It's really a key issue there. Um, some of the First Nations around the oil sands in Fort McMurray area are doing extremely well. They own lots of companies. Their development corporations have hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank. Uh, they are employing lots of people. They're very actively engaged in making equity investments now. Uh, in the in that sector, um, uh, Kinder Morgan uh, has actually signed up um, uh, agreements with more than a dozen, more than two dozen, actually, uh, First Nations along the route, where they've basically got agreed to sort of find a, a resolution that will actually meet everybody's needs. So the ma- majority of First Nations are sort of you know cautiously accepting, uh, cautiously accommodating of an, of a pipeline, um, but then the ones on the northwest coast, the ones in Vancouver, Burrard Inlet in particular, are not. Um, and when you think about it, that makes sense. Uh, most people on the prairies are very supportive of pipelines. Most people in the interior of British Columbia have a, a very sort of uh, off, handoff kind of approach to pipelines. Oh, if you have to build them, go ahead. Um, in fact, the study I was referred to the other day said that 60% of this is an unofficial, unscientific poll done by a radio station, but it showed that 60% of the people in Victoria were supportive of, of, um, of Kinder Morgan. You know, so the ones who are really er- – urgently concerned about it are the ones who live along the coast and are worried about oil spills. Um, what do you see happening then, uh, based, based on this week's decisions by the Prime Minister and the government, what do you see happening as far as uh, on-the-ground realities is concerned when the shovels get put in the ground and the and the Trans Mountain starts to be built? We, we know that the Prime Minister on uh, this coming Friday is meeting with premiers and with the Aboriginal leaders in Ottawa on his pan-climate, uh, Canadian pan-climate initiative. But what do you expect happen? Will, will happen when the shovels hit the ground? Well, we'll see what we're seeing at Standing Rock, North Dakota. And we'll see what we've seen in other sort of places across North America, that there'll be concerns. Uh, we saw those with Keystone XL. Uh, there were people prepared to sort of stand up and protest, standing in front of the, of the bulldozers. It's not a new phenomenon. We've seen it in major cities and with roads and with railways and other things in the past. Um, I think we'll see a concerted effort in this particular instance. The one thing that, and, and I say this with a, a considerable amount of knowledge of Vancouver, I've probably lived there for about 10 years uh, over the last 30, 40 years. Um, Vancouver is very quick to mobilize. They, they have a very strong environmental movement. It's got very excellent connections, and people are used to going on the streets to express their displeasure. So we had a rally a couple of weeks ago, a week and a half ago, I guess it was, that, that um, had about 5,000 people come out which in Canada is actually a really big rally. It didn't get a lot of attention across the country, but it's a fairly large rally. Um, my guess is when you actually comes down to doing the construction piece, uh, we may well see rallies and protests that are in the uh, three and four times the size of that, uh, which will really force the government to sort of make it clear that they really want to proceed. But we also have to give particularly the First Nations here some enormous credit. They're doing the same thing at Standing Rock. Uh, Sand Rock is the one in North Dakota where there's a concern about a pipeline that goes very close to a to an American Indian reservation, and they've declared repeatedly their their commitment to nonviolence, as in fact the First Nations along uh, in, uh, along the northwest uh, coast in British Columbia have done. They they they've said they're upset. They don't want it to go ahead. They are, they're going to protest, uh, but they've also committed themselves to not protesting in a violent way, and that actually has been the pattern. It is their right. Uh, to express their opinions, their right to protest. That's one of the strengths of Canada's political system. Um, the, the problem we have in Canada is that people who are supportive of things like pipelines tend to be very quiet. 
Um, so if you actually got everybody together who really wanted to see the pipeline go ahead, you might have three times as many people show up at a parade mm-hmm. or a rally. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't happen. So the people who oppose something are far more likely to organize than the people who are supportive of a project like this. Uh, you, I think the evidence is relatively strong that the majority of people in Canada understand the need for pipelines and want to see them proceed. I was reading your uh, First Nations engagement in the energy sector in Western Canada report, and, and you write that First Nations have been on a legal roll of late. A series of court victories have turned them into resource rulers. And then you write about, I don't know if it's called UNDRIP or UNDRIP, um, and, and how this UN initiative continues to change the landscape in favor of First Nations input into the natural resources sector. Uh, that has to, I mean, that, that's... That's a major factor as well, as, we, as you've been saying. So the courts uh, are available and have been very favorably disposed toward First Nations. Well, well they have. And, and I think, you know, favorable kind of applies. I've used that phrase myself, but it sort of kind of implies that they're, they're tilting the balance you know, to one side. Yes, it does. Um, I think the law is on, on, Aboriginal, on the Aboriginal side to a certain point. So, for example, you know, the courts actually turned back the um, Northern Gateway uh, permission. Federal government had, under the Harper administration, had authorized the construction of Northern Gateway. And the First Nations took it to court, and the court said, actually, there wasn't sufficient consultation. And so they basically told the government, you have to go back and do some more. Now, what's interesting is uh, Enbridge, the Northern Gateway proponents, have actually been doing an incredible amount of local consultation. They didn't do a particularly effective job in the first instance, but for the last couple of years they've been doing really, really hard work trying to talk to communities about the benefits and the risks and the uh, efforts of compensation, efforts at protection and what have you. And, and so companies realize that they have to sort of work within the parameters of the law. The government realizes that. And, and, but I think we're really at the point where we're going to figure out or find out from the courts where, where the line is drawn. Um, the courts have made it clear, at least to my mind, that Aboriginal people do not have a veto. The debate um, about the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People basically has a phrase in there that talks about free, prior, and informed consent. Some people have interpreted that to mean a veto over, over resource projects, but most others agree that it is not. It means you have to discuss it with people, make it clear what the challenges and issues are, and provide appropriate compensation. But I think on these kinds of issues, we're going to be, I'm sure they're going to go up to the Supreme Court of Canada at some point, and we're probably going to get what we really need, which is a fairly clear decision by the Supreme Court of where the line is. At what point can the government act in the national interest? Governments cannot surrender the right to act in the national interest under, under certain circumstances. Um, and the First Nations have their rights, which have to be honored and respected. We just don't know where that line is between those two positions. And it's been edging very much toward the First Nations side, but at some point it's probably going to stop. And I think on the pipelines we'll probably find out where that is. At some point, and this is my final question, or I guess point to you, at some point people, all people are going to have to realize that our combined economic reality, uh, our combined economic success and jobs and moving forward is going to uh, depend on us taking advantage of what's available to us. And what's available to us is our natural resources and getting them to international markets that want them. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. One of the things we have to also realize is that these opportunities are quite, are quite uh, short-term. Uh, Mackenzie Valley Pipeline, uh, actually I was finally approved uh, back in the early 2000s after extensive environmental review. By the time the review was done and after a long, dragged-out process, uh, the economics had changed. And the Mackenzie Valley natural gas pipeline was no longer economically viable. And the First Nations were going to be the owners of 30% of that pipeline. And it would have actually transformed communities along the route and given them a, a secure source of income. And so the, the comment there about what you made, which is very appropriate, is about the, the well-being, the economic opportunities, the sort of the prosperity of Canada, applies equally to First Nations people. That if, if they want, as many of them do, to actually have a share in Canadian prosperity, to actually earn, the, the, have the opportunity for work, for business development, and what have you, uh, they are going to have to get involved. And the, the interesting part of this whole story is that you would think from sort of the general media covers that Aboriginal people are not involved in oil and gas, aren't involved in pipelines, and are opposed to any of these kinds of developments. There are First Nations opponents, but in fact there's an awful lot of proponents and a lot of people involved. So the phrase I always use is that the resource sector in Canada is actually now the front line of reconciliation. If you want to see where Canadians are going to figure out how to work together and live together, we're actually doing it very well in the resource sector. We can make it better, and I'm hoping when the pipelines go through, we'll make it better again. Professor Coach, thank you for the time.
You're always welcome. Thank you. Professor Ken Coates, University of Saskatchewan, the Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation and the author of First Nations Engagement in the Energy Sector in Western Canada. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, yesterday, I had an opportunity to speak with the Premier of Saskatchewan, Brad Wall. And the Premier's been very good to us with giving us time um, talking about issues that affect Saskatchewan and affect this country. And we always appreciate, of course, that we're, we broadcast on CJME Radio in Regina and CKOM in Saskatoon, great radio stations, and carried this program since its inception. Thank you very much for doing that. Um, and, and so I, I had the chance to speak to Mr. Wall, two-part interview. The second part you'll tomorrow deals with pipelines. The one I'm going to play for you now deals with the national carbon tax of the Prime Minister of Canada, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, announced to the world, while his federal minister and provincial ministers of the environment were meeting to talk about such a thing. And I, I want you to listen closely to what Premier Wall had to say yesterday about what may be in store. Here's how it went. Mr. Premier, you served notice that Saskatchewan will not sign Mr. Trudeau's eventual pan-Canadian climate plan. Is it your sense the Prime Minister already has decided what that plan will be and what Premiers may wish to discuss next Friday with the Prime Minister at the conference will receive essentially short shrift from the federal government? I'm not sure that what uh, you know. I'm not sure as to what is actually left to discuss. So yeah, that's a concern. It has been since the prime minister rose in his place in the House of Commons and made a surprise and unilateral announcement. Even as the environment ministers were meeting in Montreal, ostensibly to to work up some recommendations for meaningful discussion at the meeting that you've just referenced that's occurring in Ottawa between the prime minister and the premiers. It was uh, there was. It sort of precluded at least much of the substance of what I thought we might be talking about was, I think, precluded by the uh, by the uh, Prime Minister's unilateral announcement. And since then, we've seen announcements um, at Marrakesh from the Minister of the Environment um, and we've, uh, about coal in particular. Uh, we've been able to negotiate an equivalency agreement to, to extend the life of our coal fleet to some extent. We're appreciative of that, but I think there's just a concern about the unilateral nature of this. The second full meeting of the premier and the uh, premiers and the prime minister dedicated to this one issue, that seems to have all been predecided by the federal government. Meanwhile, we have real issues, uh, uh, very important issues as well in healthcare and, of course, the economy. So, um, and I'm, I'm not sure what will be achieved at the meeting, but I do know that we will not be signing on to any plan that uh, stipulates a nationally imposed carbon tax. Premier Wall, uh, when we talked a few weeks ago. You weren't pleased with Mr. Trudeau announcing the national carbon tax without having performed even a cursory economic impact study of such a tax. In the interim, France has decided it is going to be dropping its carbon tax. And we know that in 2014, Australia did away with its carbon tax because it was damaging not only the national economy, but also damaging business and individual families. True. Moreover, I mean, I had a chance to meet with the the ambassador from Japan to Canada and asked them, uh, it, it, did he believe his country would have a uh, uh, would have a carbon tax anytime soon? He did not believe so, and of course we've seen since the election of the new president uh, elect that there there's going to, there wasn't really a chance of being a carbon tax stateside even with uh, with uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, potential can- uh, presidency. There most assuredly won't be one now. So I would say to my fellow premiers and the prime minister, name me another of Canada's major trading partners. That is pricing carbon. There's some talk about regional potential cap and trade in China, but we, it'll be hard to know exactly if what you know it'll be hard to know what the price is. There will be any uh, on carbon, what it actually might be. But there isn't the, the the answer to the question is it's rhetorical. The answer is there isn't one, and so we're going to go it alone, uh, and we're going to have it be you know a fifty dollar a ton uh, carbon tax right across the country. Uh, even though our largest trading partner and our biggest competitor for investment uh, is the United States. Now, with respect to the economic impact assessment, Roy, I think it's worth pointing out that the federal government, through some FOIs, has been demonstrated to have done asked at least a few questions about it, uh, including some internal polls that the PMO didn't want to release to the public. But in this FOI, it came out that Canadians actually don't support this in the majority of all of the options to deal with climate change. 
This is not by any means the most popular one. It's one of the least popular ones. Moreover, we know the federal government admits in the work they've done with the provinces at the working tables on this issue, they admit something that they call, the economists benignly call, carbon leakage. Carbon leakage is when jobs move from a jurisdiction that has a carbon tax to one that does not. So uh, what they call carbon leakage represents significant uh, pressures and, frankly, potential job loss in agriculture in Saskatchewan, in mining in Saskatchewan, in oil and gas in Saskatchewan. And so whether it's revenue neutral or not, as the federal government likes to say, is moot if, in fact, people have lost their jobs because investments is, are going stateside uh, rather than here in Canada. And that's why we, one of the reasons we won't be signing on. Another important reason to not sign on to a carbon tax is they haven't been demonstrated to work. <laughs> not only are other countries moving away from them, but the only carbon tax, the model tax that's pointed to by the federal government that we've had in Canada since 2008, at I think about $30 a ton now, uh, has... Uh, has not resulted in emission reductions. Emissions are up in British Columbia. And some might say, well, that's because their economy's gone up or the GDP's increased. Well, remember that Paris is not about carbon intensity. Paris, the, the accord is about emissions, absolute emissions reductions. And it's not happening in British Columbia. In fact, the federal government forecast emissions to increase dramatically in uh, British Columbia uh, through to uh, 2030. So... You know, and they have a carbon tax. So this is another reason why we won't be signing on to a carbon tax at the meeting in Ottawa. Mr. Premier, knowing all of this, and uh, the other premiers would have this information clearly, what do you expect from your fellow premiers next Friday attending that meeting in, uh, in Ottawa? Will they fall in line with Mr. Trudeau and single you out as a national problem? Yeah, cue the skunk at the garden party memes, I think. In the next uh, next week, when the meeting begins, there will not be any other uh, uh, provinces supporting Saskatchewan's position, at least not that we're aware of. Um, I think there are provinces that are, in principle, concerned about jurisdictional infringement, uh, or at least jurisdictional creep, because it's true that the federal government and the provinces both share jurisdiction when it comes to the environment. But not enough for any to not sign this pan-Canadian agreement, which has been the, the heart of it, the pricing of carbon, the taxing of carbon, has been decided by the federal government unilaterally. But uh, I think the, uh, uh, they're concerned about that unilateralism, but not enough that would stop them from signing, I don't think. I mean, I guess that could change in the next number of days, but I think we'll be the only ones. And uh, it's not a position we'd like to be in, frankly. Um, we've said pretty clearly, Roy, that we're not trying to be obstructionist when it comes to the fight against climate change. We're simply pointing out that if Canada is even successful in hitting its targets, uh, that would be represent a 30% reduction of 1.6% of global emissions. Meanwhile, there's 2,400 coal plants on the books are being built around the world. And I guess our point is that we've been so myopically focused on a tax, on a price on carbon that would maybe impact 1.6% of global emissions that we've missed a huge opportunity for Canada to lead in an international uh, uh, effort to find technologies that will, like we are doing in, in, at Boundary Dam 3 and Esteban, that will ensure that coal can be burned two times cleaner than natural gas, for example. To me, that's, that's, actual, that's technological mitigation. That's actually doing something about the problem. It's not pricing it or capping it and trading it and moving it around. Uh, and, and again, being focused on the 1.6% of global emissions that Canada is responsible for. It just, it just doesn't make sense. And so it'll be maybe a lonely meeting, but uh, we're, uh, we're bracing ourselves for that. The skunk at the garden party, I like that. Uh, Premier Wall, Canadians who support your view may do so uh, online with the Saskatchewan Party petition, and it's saskparty.com forward slash carbon tax. Premier, thank you so much. Correct. Thank you, sir. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Stop. Stop. Stop sending me emails telling me I should run for office. Stop. Stop that. You wouldn't want that. Trust me. You would not want me running this country. But then again, maybe you might. I don't know. I know I'd like to see Catherine Swift, Linda Leatherdale, and Michelle Simpson running this country. I'd sign on to that in a heartbeat. 
Uh, let me see now. Who'd be the prime minister? Swifty, you're the prime minister. Oh, God. I think it should be Roy as prime minister. No, no, yeah, I think no, no, no. The beast. Well, <laughs> who's we residing at... Who's, who's in the PMO, the beast? Yes, he'll be the beast. I'll be the finance minister. Well, definitely. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. And the minister of ethical behavior and yeah. and and defense and general supervisory of the government would, of course, be... I would step into that role. You would be the only person for that role, Ms. Simpson. <laughs> so here we are. And uh, why don't we go through a couple of issues and run them by you guys. Oh, here come the emails again. Um... Let's start with electoral reform. It's been quite a week. It's been a smearing the smearing your colleagues have been sitting with you trying to come up with a plan that the prime minister promised that now is not going to happen. So who wants to take the lead on this, on what happened on electoral reform or didn't happen? I will. Okay. Thanks, Roy. Um, that was bizarre, uh, and it was um, obnoxious behavior by the minister to be as dismissive as she was. And so this is maybe the second controversial thing she's been involved in, the first being where she was born. Which she doesn't uh, know. She doesn't know yeah, where she was born, e- right? Exactly, right. although she did make a trek to Iran two years ago. Right. Uh, Purely coincidental. Event, uh, it's a disturbing trend that I'm... I personally am seeing in the government where, you know, they they sort of dressed it up as a, a, an election issue that they want to consult with Canadians, they want to do this, do that, and uh, it's the second time the government has basically trashed the results uh, of a study by an all-party committee. The first being assisted suicide, as you recall. Yes. And I think it's it's just kicking the can down the road that they really aren't serious about dealing with some of this. I wanted to ask you, Michelle. Yeah. Did 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 the marching orders come from the PMO for the minister? You know, you will oh, go. No. You will I, go into parliament. You will say this. I believe it was the. It, it had to be the PMO. Because it sounded to me like it sounded to me like a Justin Trudeau temper tantrum. Uh, yeah, it's you know it's they they predetermine. It seems this government has predetermined where it wants to go. There's a dog and pony show, and if that dog and pony show doesn't match up where 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 they want to go. Yeah, I think it is a temper tantrum. Yeah. But I think that Monsef took it too far. I mean, she was insulting. I would be really insulted and mad if I'd spent time on that committee. So I had this vision of uh, Catherine Swift being on that committee, <laughs> sitting, in, sitting, sitting in Parliament, and, and, and um, Minister Monsef says what she says, and Catherine's... I just see the glare. And well, then, and then if, she stops if, to. If anyone, I totally agree with Michelle. Of course, it came from the PMO. This is way too important a file to let any minister, let alone someone who's as demonstratedly incompetent as Marianne Monsef is. But you know, if you have ever seen this woman, there's actually a, a thing on Twitter today. I just happened to see, which was a a little sort of montage of a number of media appearances of hers, where she invariably chastises the interviewer as being stupid. Uh, she's a very condescending and yet surprisingly ill-informed individual, it seems, who, who is immensely uh, proud of her own um, you know, position on these issues and, and, and very condescending to everyone else. And I think that just came out with her comments to the committee that they hadn't done their job properly. But the bottom line here is, just to reiterate what Michelle said, the, the, the government, they knew what they wanted. The Liberals knew what they wanted to do on this file. They had this phony baloney consultation process, and now they're supposedly sending us postcards. Is that going to happen? I don't even know if that's going to happen in the wake of all this mess last week. 
But and that's every, everything. All these things cost us a lot of money too. Let's not forget about that. Yeah. But they didn't yeah. get the outcome they predicted, so they are throwing a hissy fit. And yeah. that's what yeah. this is all about. And but thank goodness enough Canadians stood up and said, "A, if you're going to do this, we want a referendum." Because any government, again, this is all over the social media today, saying, "Well, they were elected on this promise." Well, I'm sorry. Something this governments say lots of things when they're running for office. If you really think that everybody expects them, or everybody expects that they voted for every single thing on that on that agenda, then you're dreaming in technicolor. Especially something as important as how we choose governments, how our democracy operates. The minimum is we deserve a referendum. And Linda, yeah. what are your what are your thoughts about well, all this? I couldn't agree more with Catherine. A referendum, absolutely on this. But you know what I found interesting, Roy, is you're you're saying, well, I'm not sure I totally understand this. And guess what? I don't think. A lot of Canadians understand this first past the post. Well, I know what that is. Voting it's very system. complicated. Oh, and I like to ask of all these things, though. Yeah. You know, the, there's several versions of all of these things. Uh, yes, there are, Catherine. I, I did a little homework on this, but then I ask Monsef, who's so critical, does she even know how the system works? So. Well, I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it. And here's something else. You know, it was a promise, and I believe that the Canadians. I mean. We want true democracy. I know that the voting representation with this system, they just, you know, some of the smaller parties don't get the fair seats. It is complicated. But let's, let us have a referendum on this. And come on, this is a broken promise. Do a it, referendum. So here's my it referendum vote. Sorry, Catherine, go ahead. You know what? I think Canadians writ large smelled a rat. Even though they might not have understood the intricacies of all these various voting systems, I think they still had the sense, and I think this is very true, that the Liberals wanted to put a system in that was going to be favorable to them mm -hmm. for the foreseeable future, yeah. and people didn't like it. Mm -hmm. uh, look, it, what, we've, what, we've, what we have works. Maybe not to the satisfaction of some political parties, but it works. And until such time as you can clearly explain what a better process is, clearly explain what a better process is without taking shots at each other, and then allow Canadians to decide by way of referendum. Until you can do that, stop. Yep. Just stop. And no system stop. is perfect. Of course, the current system we have first class, of course it's not perfect. But you look at countries that have these, these other types of systems, there are variants of them, and you have the lunatic. Look at, look at some of the lunacy going on with some of these far-right, scary parties in Europe. Well, that's because they have versions of proportional representation or these other systems that permit even someone that gets a very, very small percentage of the vote to get a foothold in, in a legislature. Mm -hmm. So we got to think long and hard about this. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. It's not just a. It's just. It's not just an election promise. I mean, to, to me, Prime Minister Trudeau and I talked to Tom Caldwell earlier today, Chairman of Caldwell Securities, and he said it so well. He just doesn't have experience. He doesn't have experience. And and it, Tom said, you know, he, he's a drama teacher, and that probably helps him with politics. But but he doesn't have the gravitas. He doesn't have the experience to to run a complicated reality like a federal government he doesn't he just doesn't and what scares me even more though is the people advising him are the well, ones they're really scary and yeah, are we still paying over a hundred thousand dollars to move butts from toronto to ottawa <laughs> yeah yeah we are aren't these we guys are the ones that wrecked ontario i'm sorry but that's well that's they did the fact they did and, yeah. and now and they're very good at winning elections listen my hat's off to them they are very good at winning elections yeah. Well, you know, when we talk, you want to talk about Ontario, for example, and we won't, we won't focus on Ontario, but we have uh, a progressive conservative leader who was on the show last week, Patrick Brown, who is just not going to win the election by being as milk toasty and as unwilling to properly answer questions and deal with issues like the electricity pricing. Sorry, but yep. Mr. Brown did yep. not satisfy. That's, that's he did. I asked him some very direct questions. The, 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 what we had talked about before, I put the puck on his stick. I moved the goalie away. I put him five feet in front of the net, and he missed the, and he missed, you know, he shot it over the top of the net. How sad is that? How sad is that? And you know what? I've been listening to the show, Roy, really good show. But one thing, you know, this whole um, Trump mania south of the border, uh, economics is right in front of us. There's a whole pile of things that people are really, they're, you know what it is, Linda? You know what it is? It's the message. It's the popular. I earlier today I talked about Kelly Leach, 
And, and yeah. we know a couple of things about Keller Leach that have been newsmakers. One is the Canadian values story. The other one was this week, the pepper, may, the pepper spray and the mace. Okay, that's essentially what is foremost in people's minds. How do you feel about voting for, for Kelly Leach? Would you vote for her based on what you know about her? Um, you know, the, the Canadian equivalency to, to Donald Trump is how I phrased it somehow, just to get, get things going. There was, an, except for one caller, everyone was defending Kelly Leach and prepared to vote for her because it's the message more so than the messenger, and that was the reality on November the 8th in the United States. Uh, absolutely, Roy. And I think what's interesting, Trudeau visited the Toronto Star this week, and he even agrees that there is this unrest globally. People are fed up with globalization and some other issues. So he was lucky he got elected, electoral reform or not. But I think that there's a real huge swing that, Roy, you hit the nail on the why, head a couple Linda, of Linda, why wouldn't we be fed up? Why wouldn't we be fed up? Michelle, you were in that particular building known as Canada's Parliament. You were a member of Parliament. You were a liberal member of Parliament. You were an ethical liberal member of Parliament. And who dumped on you? My own party. For what reason? For being ethical. For being transparent. promise and being transparent. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.